Would you say grace, please? Um, uh... Oh my god! We, uh, thank you for the food that mom has put in front of us. And stop! The, uh, the devil! From doing bad things and, uh... Get out of here! Uh, Satan. A huge robot falls to Earth, and it's up to a nine-year-old boy to hide the metallic creature from the government. Special guest Matt from Season 14, Time for a Podcast, joins us to discuss baguettes at Omaha Beach, my home improvement fan fiction, and Brad Bird's arch nemesis. Then we find out if the Iron Giant stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and who are you there? I'm James Brief, and it's always exciting, Al, when we have another person on the podcast with us. Yes, it is, and we are doing special requests this November, and we have a special guest with us tonight. We have Matt from Season 14, Time for a Podcast. Matt, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I am so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this since I suggested this a while back. Yeah, you you did request to come on the show a while ago, and right out of the gate, sorry. Sorry it's taken a while. Oh no, it's been worth the wait. I've just really been looking forward to this, and now the hype is up to here, and it's <laughs> helped me like get to know your show even better. Oh, well, well, there you go. I will say, James, I usually side with you whenever there's a split. <laughs> Yes, it's just sometimes like when, when that there's that clear divide, I'm just sort of like I'm not seeing Alan's side of this. <laughs> I feel like you might have mentioned that once on Twitter or something, but like James never checks the Twitter, so whenever someone says Alan's wrong on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, I'm never gonna tell that to James. Like, why would I mention that? But like when people are like Alan's right, I screenshot it immediately <laughs> oh, and send it to James. Like, see. <laughs> And we met each other a while back. James and I were on your former podcast, Time Shifters, and we recorded an episode about the Philadelphia Experiment, which was a just a bonkers kind of a movie. I think that's fair to say, right? Bonkers? Yeah. Bonkers of its time. Yes, 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 yes. And now you are doing a a podcast called Season 14, Time for a Podcast. Why don't you tell our listeners what that show is all about? So I have been a huge fan of the series Supernatural, and I've always wanted to do a podcast about it. So it is me, my friend, and her sister, and her sister has never seen the show before. And so she is going through it one episode at a time. 
And it's kind of an emotional roller coaster. And she's a very outwardly expressive person. So she's the perfect person to take through this series for the first time. The highs are very high. The lows are very low. She is very reactive and I love her for it. That's great. And you have already watched the show like once full through at least and maybe a couple times. How many times have you been through the show? Certain seasons I've probably watched like five, six times. Certain episodes probably a dozen times. The whole series from start to finish definitely once. Wow. Wow. Okay. And you are up to where in the show right now? Uh, We just released season seven, episode five, and the whole series is 15 seasons, 327 episodes. So we're not quite halfway there, but we'll be there in season eight. Wow. That is an ambitious undertaking. And uh, it's great for you to revisit something that you love and then bring someone else along who's brand new to it. That way you can have your perspective as well as a newbie's perspective. I mean, that's great. Yeah. And so PG and Jess are just two best co-hosts to work with. And it's just been a lot of fun. And people can find this podcast on all of the usual podcast apps, I assume? Yep. You search season 14 podcast or season 14 time for a podcast, you will find us. Gotcha. And so do you want to explain the name a little bit? Because like you said, Supernatural went for 15 seasons. Yes. So we started it just before the 14th season because back then nobody knew how long the show would go for it. It was one of those shows that it was like, why, it's still on? It's still on. Like you got to season eight and you were like, it's still on. And then it just kept going. And so I had wanted to do it for years and we were coming up, trying to come up with names. And there's an episode called season seven, Time for a Wedding. And we thought it would be funny to play off that and be like, well, the show's starting its 14th season. Let's just name it that. And the thing is, is anybody who's a fan of Supernatural, they say when they see that title, they know exactly what it's about. That's great. I want to say I remember reading somewhere that the plan was for that show to end after its seventh season. Fifth. A fifth? Yes. Wow. That was the original story. That was the creator's original run. He stepped down to showrunner, and then it just kind of kept going. It's the little show that could. That's an impressive run. Yeah. Hasn't the star gone on to a new show now? Yeah, Supernatural finished its run after 15 seasons. Jared Padalecki is now the star of Walker. That's it. That's it. And Jensen Ackles will be showing up in the third season of The Boys. Oh, nice. And wasn't Jensen Ackles on the set of that movie where Alec Baldwin uh, shot the guy? Yeah. Nothing good has come out about that story. No, 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 no. I mean, horrible way for me to bring that into the conversation. I mean, like, you you don't want your name associated with that in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) Uh, I was reading an article about that, and I saw his name pop in there. Just a terrible, terrible thing. Well, I think the thing that's going to come out of this is there's going to be sweeping changes in the industry. Definitely. I mean, they're going to change the way that guns are used, at least on major motion pictures. It's going to be part of, you know, SAG rules. I assume there's going to be some basic safety. You're never going to be able to point a weapon, loaded, unloaded, nerf, whatever, at any other, you know, off-camera person. That's probably going to be a rule, something like that. Yeah, hopefully they can uh, have some measure of improvement after that. I guess, though, how do you do, like, you know, firing at the camera shots? CGI, I guess. I don't know. I always assumed when they did that, they like set the camera up behind like bulletproof plexi and just the lens stuck out. Like everyone was shielded. 
Well, I mean, just even pointing guns. I don't mean the shooting. I mean, like, if we need new oh. rules, like you shouldn't even point a gun and fire, you know, the powder out of the shotgun. Maybe just don't make movies with guns anymore. Just make movies where everyone, like, hugs and gets along. <laughs> you can go full Spielberg and just turn all the guns into walkie-talkies. There you go. Exactly. You know, uh, Omaha Beach, and you know, it's, they're holding baguettes, bringing them to France. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but let's talk about The Iron Giant, because, Matt, this was a movie that you had requested, like we said, a while ago. So why is it that you wanted to talk about this particular movie? Well, it came up when you guys were doing your three-episode discussion on the four Christopher Reeve Superman movies. Right. You asked your usual question of, you know, does it stand the test of time? And I had said that, you know, the performance does, the the message does, but something about the ending of that first Superman movie just kind of always bothered me. And then you had asked the follow-up, you know, what was my favorite Superman movie? And I said, it's The Iron Giant. And it makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, so I'm not sure if I said it in the tweet at the time when we were talking about this, but I had never seen The Iron Giant until two nights ago when I watched it for the first time with my wife and kids. Obviously, you had seen it before. This is a movie you'd seen many times. Is that fair to say? Many, many times. Okay. Yeah. I own the DVD. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's okay. how I watched it. Yeah, DVD. I didn't even have to check where it was streaming. It was streaming on HBO Max as of two days ago. I'm always afraid to say that because I feel like things change so quickly. They pull things fast. Right? It's like, oh, we'll watch this movie. It's on Netflix. And then you go like two days later and it's gone. So as of the time that we are recording this, it's on HBO Max for anyone who does want to watch it. But if you haven't seen the movie, it's set in 1957, and it's about a 50-foot-tall robot that falls from the sky and lands off the coast of Maine. Nine-year-old Hogarth Hughes finds the Iron Giant, and though he is terrified at first, Hogarth soon decides that the robot is gentle and the pair become friends. Meanwhile, a government bureaucrat named Kent Mansley is searching for the Iron Giant, convinced that it's a dangerous Soviet weapon. To keep his new metallic buddy safe, Hogarth teams up with Dean, an artist who owns a local junkyard. When the army shows up ready to attack, the Iron Giant's true nature is revealed. So when this movie came out in 1999, how did it do at the box office, James? Yeah, this movie did not do well. It had the unfortunate uh, opening weekend of another unexpected 1999 super smash. You know what that was, Al? Sort of a thriller horror film. The Sixth Sense? That's correct, yeah. So if there was going to be one like, hey, did you hear about this film that was not mega hype that summer? I guess maybe uh, Sixth Sense took all the hype. And, you know, this was, of course, a cartoon. This is before they even made a, a Best Picture category for Best Animated Film. And this is something like, oh, maybe it's good for kids. We were 20 years old. Well, we weren't 20 years old. We were 19 years old this summer. Like, we were not going to see a movie called The Iron Giant. I'm just saying at its surface. Like, maybe you saw the trailer, you see something. But if you see a poster for this, you and I were not going to go see this film. And I think it's reflected in the fact that this film opened at number nine with 5.7 million. Like, below a lot of other forgettable films. Yeah, Sixth Sense, fine. But there's a lot of forgettable films that beat this. And it wound up being $23 million. And this film, according to IMDb, this film cost as much as $70 million to make. Wow. So, Matt, were you one of the people who did see it in the theater? 
No, I wasn't. Uh, I caught it probably a year or two later when it was just on HBO all the time. And so I remember I watched it and then I watched it again and I watched it again. And it was just one of those movies for me that just kept getting better and better. And then I grew up and kind of had forgotten about it, then came back to it and was like, I just fell in love with it all over again. And now it's just one of those like go-to movies for me where people like, I haven't seen it. And I'm like, well, guess what we're doing this weekend? <laughs> I mean, it's it's a quick watch. I mean, it's what, like yeah. an hour, 25 minutes, something like that. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I watch it with my wife and, and the kids. And as soon as it was over, my wife said, you know, it's funny that I never watched it. And that you never watched it. And I was like, yeah, but I think to your point, James, like, you know, it came out when we were 1920. Yeah, we just weren't interested in seeing the new cartoon right away. And then it just kind of fell by the wayside. It's also interesting to point out that this is after Toy Story, you know, like 3D Mm -hmm. Pixar style animation existed. And so this is not just an animated movie, but kind of a throwback because it's a 2D, you know, hand-drawn style animation. Yeah, but this is also pre-Shrek. I I feel like Shrek is maybe the animated film that brought in like the first time since maybe Aladdin where you had, uh, you know, adults and kids together. You know, one thing else going against it was the fact that we haven't talked about it yet. This was not Disney. This was not DreamWorks. This was Warner Brothers Animation. I mean, they're famous for Looney Tunes, but those are kind of comic shorts, and they're not really known for doing feature-length films. Right. And there was another movie that came out before this that Warner Brothers had done, Quest for Camelot or something? I might be Mm -hmm. getting that wrong. Yeah, it was a huge flop for uh, Warner Brothers as well. Right. So then, you know, they were a little bit nervous about how would they market it, and they really bungled the, the marketing of the movie, so... It really didn't have a great shot at success when it hit theaters, but um, the movie opens and pretty much right away we see this creature, this thing crash landing from space without really any explanation about what it is, where it's coming from, anything like that. Yeah, and also the film really establishes right away that it's uh, the 1950s. And now you're not going to get away with uh, me not mentioning the opening shot of the film. Come on. Uh, It's space. We see Earth. And what flies by? Space stuff? No, a satellite. (laughs) Specifically Sputnik, the uh, the Soviet satellite. It was the first satellite in in space. You know, in 1957, it terrified Americans that there was this pulsating uh, thing you could see flying across the United States, and uh, you could tune your radios, and all you could hear was a pulse. But it terrified people. They'd say, oh, they're going to launch a bomb and drop a, drop it on us, and it launched the space age. But more importantly, this establishes that this is the height of, you know, McCarthy era, us versus them, Cold War, you know, the Soviet Union is this weird enemy. Uh, this is where we are in 19. 1957. But the town we're in, it's kind of this, you know, regular 1950s American town. And it's called Rockwell, which sounds like Roswell, New Mexico, famous for allegedly where a UFO landed, but also like Norman Rockwell. And the entire aesthetic of the movie is very Rockwellian. Yeah, I agree with you. It has that Norman Rockwell-esque image. But uh, there's a big storm in the ocean and some huge structure has risen out of the ocean and a ship crashes into it and is about to sink. And it sees this image of what looks like a large metallic face. 
And next thing you know, this uh, sailor is washed up on shore. This basically establishes you know, the, the opening mystery. One of the things I like about this movie is how it just it just starts. It doesn't start with with Hogarth and his mom. It doesn't start with Kent Mansley as this government guy. It just starts. This thing crashes and bam, there's your opening. There's your Iron Giant. And there isn't a lot of explanation for, you know, who he is or where he comes from. It's just this is the beginning of the adventure. You're plopped down into this story. And it's not hard to figure out as you go along, but that's what the movie's asking you to do is just to sort of pay attention and figure out as it goes. I think that's a very good point that uh, you point out that the Iron Gen is revealed right away because I feel like the formula for these kind of films is to not quite reveal it right away. There's yeah. the crash, maybe a hand you see, but no, they, they kind of show right away that there's this huge robot here. Right. And because you mentioned Sputnik, James, is that meant to imply that the Iron Giant is, in fact, a Russian weapon? I mean, that's what the government agent thinks is the case. But, you know, they never really say for sure. Well, there's all kinds of fan speculation. Did the launching of an artificial satellite in space summon the Iron Giant from somewhere? Yeah, there's all kinds of fan theories of of what brought this here. But regardless, it just disappears into the forest and we just cut straight to this uh, little boy, this uh, this kid, Hogarth Hughes. I love this name. It's it's great. Now, like it kind of sounds like like Howard Hughes or something. And Hogarth Hughes has that kind of comic hero, you know, Clark Kent, Bruce Banner, Peter Parker. Right. The actor who plays Hogarth is a guy named Eli Marienthal, who I don't recognize from other things. I was clicking on his IMDb before. Apparently, he is Stifler's brother in American Pie. Okay. But you instantly recognize the voice of his mother, Annie, because that's Jennifer Aniston. And I think it's fair to say she's probably the biggest name in this movie in terms of the the voice cast. Yeah, but she's also a television actress at this time. I, I mean, not in a diminished way, but this is, I think, just when you're starting to have the animated films have to have, you know, a, an all-star cast. You had Robin Williams, but all you had famous in uh, Lion King of, of Node, you know, James Earl Jones. Um, Jonathan Taylor Thomas? <laughs> does that name mean nothing to you? It, it does. It means, it means a, a lot to me. The, uh, the home improvement fan fiction that I write uh, monthly. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's not like when The Lion King, the, the animated remake came out, and it's like, oh, who's playing this part? And who's going to play this part? It used to just be more, oh, do you even realize that that's played by this guy? Right. Annie is a single mom and she works in a diner and Hogarth is always getting in trouble. And in this diner scene, we also meet Dean, who is a beatnik, I guess. I mean, I didn't really get like heavy beatnik vibes from him. I only say that because I I saw that, you know, on IMDb while I was reading about the movie today. I mean, I guess he's an artist, but he's not like the most stereotypical beatnik I could imagine, you know? You know, he's he's like kind of the everyman in in this he's the one that has a very normal reaction like i feel like if he was the stereotypical beatnik he'd be like of course giant robot let's all be friends kind of thing yeah everyman i think that's exactly the perfect word he's just like a regular guy who is into art and owns a scrapyard yeah 
Um, there is, I guess it wouldn't be a test of time thing because this movie takes place in the past, but there is a, a moment when Hogarth is in school and they do like the duck and cover drills. I love that. And the atomic holocaust. <laughs> like it's, it, it's an amazing amount of fear that these kids had. I assume Matt, you're in the same, maybe you're in the same categories as were you before, uh, gun drills but after duck and cover yes do you realize we were in this window like a fire drill an alarm going off meant people were like cheering because yeah. it meant like fire drill yeah you know 15 minutes outside right right out like this is what it was in the 80s and 90s yeah. when when the fire alarm was pulled yeah and in the 50s and i guess 60s kids were terrified of an atomic bomb being dropped on their school now kids are are being scared of a shooter breaking in and in both situations oh yeah just hide under your desk hide in the closet great um yeah see here's the thing with a nuclear bomb hiding under your desk isn't gonna help and the guy with the machine gun comes in yeah hide in the closet i guess but it's terrifying and it's traumatizing for children and in this movie they sort of make it into like a little like schoolhouse rock kind of song you know, about like how you should duck and cover, which is like an interesting juxtaposition of this horrifying message with like a cutesy little song. <laughs> yeah, I-, I agree. But something I totally forgot about this film, the villain, uh, Ken Mansley, I remembered him, but I forgot that he's voiced by another one of my favorite villains. Uh, did you catch who the voice was, Al? Yeah, he's the guy from Happy Gilmore, but I just watched Hacks, which is on HBO Max also, and he is in that show too. So Courtney actually identified him as like, hey, isn't that that guy from Hacks? Yeah, he's voiced by uh, Christopher McDonald, and he does such a good job as like this paranoid government agent who, you know, he's, he's trying to do right by his country, but he's being fueled by his fear and just kind of like the whole cast none of them are traditional voice actors but i think every single one of them was cast just right for their role yeah i think he does a great job and while we're talking about voice actors we should mention that the iron giant himself is voiced by vin diesel many years before he was the voice of groot and is technically in the MCU, even though he really only ever says the same three words over and over again. You know, in this movie, he really only has like a handful of lines. And it's not instantly recognizable that it's Vin Diesel. I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily known that just from watching the movie. Maybe, but once you know it, right? Like you could hear Vin Diesel as you're listening to it. You know, it shows that someone saw something in him because you're right. This is pre-Fast and Furious, pre, uh, you know, Pitch Black. This is one year after Saving Private Ryan, but that's, you know, that's not what made him big. I remember him doing an interview where he said he, he really wanted this role because he wanted, at the time to be in a movie that his then young daughter could watch him in. And that was one of the reasons he really wanted this part. Aww, that's cute. Well, I guess when you look at someone like Vin Diesel, to be honest, I mean, what is he going to be cast in? Until he's a big star, he's probably going to be typecast as big guy. Is not going to be in a family film generally. Right. Until The Pacifier? Exactly. When it's Vin Diesel in The Pacifier, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger as kindergarten cop. Like, that's the formula. It's 
the rite of passage for the action star. You have to do something where your co-star is like nine. The Rock did one. Yes, The Rock did one. Uh, the Tooth Fairy. Right, exactly. And when Hogarth first meets the Iron Giant, the Iron Giant is eating metal. He grabs this uh, electrical tower and he gets electrocuted and Hogarth saves him by turning off the power for this whole entire town, which can be controlled with one giant switch that says on and off, which is pretty convenient. If it were that easy, that town would lose power every day (laughs) to pranksters going out there. Exactly. You know what, Al? I didn't think of that, but good on you (laughs) picking that out. Well, you're welcome. Uh, But the Iron Giant is damaged when he gets hit by a train. He's going for a snack on these train tracks, and the train's going to derail, and Hogarth is trying to explain to him to put the tracks back together, and, you know, they don't speak the same language because he's a giant robot, but he does put the track down to presumably save the train, but then the train hits him anyway, and I guess no one is killed by this train derailment. It seems like everyone is fine, except for the Iron Giant, who's smashed to bits, but he's got this cool superpower where he can, like, reassemble himself. Yeah, like a little antenna pops out of his head, and it calls all the pieces back, and he's as good as new. You know, he does understand Hogarth, that he has to put the tracks back together after he was chewing on it, but he, he takes it so literally that he he can't stop putting his uh, you know fingers on the track until he has it to the nanometer together. And I laugh every time I see it, because it's like, no, it, it was perfect, and now it's like, yeah, move out of the way, but he, he doesn't. But you do want him to have an attention to detail on that sort of thing, because like the first time he puts it back, it's like kind of there, but still crooked. And like, yeah, the train's going to derail anyway. You do need a certain measure of like making sure it's really smooth. Yeah. And I think they made a point of it. I think this is like this is a commercial train. I think there was only a driver. And then the driver later talks to the uh, FBI guy, uh, Kent Mansley. I think there was no one injured. And yeah, this is not the kind of film that there's going to be, you know, deaths, certainly not at the Iron Giant's hand. Right, right. Hogarth doesn't want the Iron Giant to follow him home, but he does anyway. He mostly reassembles. The hand is still trying to get back to the body, and Hogarth has to say his grace over dinner. And, you know, he's saying, like, get out, speaking to the hand, but then he has to cover his tracks and be like, devil from our lives. That's kind of like a thing you see in kids' movies where the kid is saying one thing but then has to fake a second meaning to his parent, and it's kind of cute. Did your kids laugh, Al? Yes, both my kids were laughing at that. Okay. You know, we haven't mentioned yet the director of this film, Brad Bird. Now, Al, I'm curious. When I say Brad Bird, honest, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Incredibles. All right, The Incredibles. What about you, Matt? Well, I mean, I'm biased. It's this, but then I would have said The Incredibles. I actually think either this or uh, some of his classic Simpsons episodes. He directed Krusty Gets Busted, 
and uh, like father, like clown. So two crusty centric episodes. Yeah, he, he worked on The Simpsons. Uh, I believe he worked on The Critic also. I read that he like brought some of his like Simpsons work ethic to this movie because this was the first movie he ever directed and he made it very collaborative and he asked everyone for their opinion and he used what they said, which he attributed to the, his work on The Simpsons and uh I still haven't seen the movie Tomorrowland. A friend of the podcast, Adam Pincus, always raves about that. He says it's a great movie, and I've been meaning to watch it for the last six years, and I haven't gotten around to it yet, but I've heard good things. And he also has a good superhero name, Brad Bird. <laughs> there you go. And even his superhero name, not just his alter ego, he could be Brad Bird, the Brad Bird. No, no, that doesn't work at all. He's half Brad, half a bird. <laughs> That's the worst superhero ever. <laughs> Brad Bird, <laughs> a.k.a. Bird Brad. Right, right. His nemesis is Bird Brad. <laughs> the, the other part in this scene where, like, the Iron Giant's hand is slinking around the house and Hogarth is trying to get rid of it, there's a couple of moments like this in the movie, but this is the one that stood out to me the most where, like, What's happening in the animation is lining up with the music and there's the part where the hands dangling out the bathroom window and you see like the fingers just like, you know, flicking back and forth and you hear the piano keys go at the exact moment as though the fingers of the giant are stroking the piano keys. And there's other moments like that in the movie that always just make me smile that they decided to line up what was happening on screen with the exact sounds and tones and beats of the soundtrack yeah there's definitely an attention to detail you can see and i've only watched the movie once but i can easily see that if i watch this movie a couple more times i would notice more and more things every time yeah i noticed something this time uh when mansley he's hearing about this iron giant his car got eaten and he really wants to get the government involved because he thinks this might be soviet right in fact he says wherever it came from it didn't come from america so we have to destroy it and he wants a uh, some memo sent to washington and he has this great line and he goes and i want that memo carbon copied it's a great 50s line yeah 50s 60s line i mean i carbon copy things all the time when i send an email yeah exactly yes it's the same thing yeah he meant he wanted it cc'd to his uh, 1950s uh vacuum tube computer <laughs> there you go um, but while Hogarth and the Iron Giant are bonding, Hogarth introduces his new friend to his comics. There's one with like an evil robot on the cover and the Iron Giant doesn't like that. He likes Superman. And this is where we sort of get into the theme of the movie because Hogarth says to the Iron Giant that you are who you choose to be because the Iron Giant looks like a big scary thing and everyone is scared of him, you know, going back to that first scene when he crashes into the ocean and the sailor sees him. He's terrified. He's, you know, a 50 foot tall metal man that's going to intimidate people, but it's not who the Iron Giant wants to be. Yeah. And there's this other character we haven't really talked about yet. Uh, Dean. He is voiced by quite a crooner. Harry Connick Jr. Right. Are you a big Harry Connick Jr. fan, James? You know, I actually, I couldn't even remember what he sang, so I just put him on Spotify, and I, I left the room, and I, I went outside for a moment, and they, they 
came back and I, I kind of, I didn't pay attention to what music was on and I felt like I was at a wedding cocktail hour. <laughs> and then I realized I was like, oh, uh, you know, Lex, I could turn off the music now. But it was nice, but, you know, it's not my kind of music to listen to, but that's exactly like what it sounds like, a nice cocktail hour. He has a couple of uh, Christmas albums that uh, Courtney always puts on in December. The only other thing that I can remember him from is he's the other fighter pilot in Independence Day. The one who's like friends with Will Smith's character. Right. That's right. That's right. Jimmy, put your mask back on. <laughs> he's Jimmy. <laughs> and, you know, you've mentioned this. He's, he's quite a beatnik. So there winds up being a perfect solution. Uh, Holgarth is now becoming friends with the Iron Giant, and the scrapyard has all kinds of metal for him to eat. And Dean also has a place to stash him while he goes to school. Then it turns out that uh, the Iron Giant was just what he needed because he's an artist, and now he has this enormous 50-foot-tall guy to carve metal any way he wants. Which is a handy thing to have when you've got just a yard full of scrap metal and you want to make your art. And also, I mean, it says something about Dean. I mean, both of these guys have a 50-foot robot at their disposal. And what does Hogarth do? He does a scene that looks straight out of Lord of the Rings, the two towers. It looks straight like uh, that treetop scene. He wants to swim with him and then play with him. And Dean wants to make art with him. And it kind of says something about, you know, if you had a huge robot, what would you do with it? Well, if you had a huge robot, what would you do with it? Matt, you go first. Well, something that doesn't happen in the movie, I would ask the robot what he wants to do. <gasps> oh, that's the perfect answer. <laughs> that's like Aladdin wishing for the genie to be free. That is very selfless of you, Matt. James, what would you do? I open a theme park called Robot Land. There you go. What are you going to do with your 50-foot robot? Um, I would imagine I would just like want to go places you could go anywhere and it would take you no time just just like sitting on his shoulder you know like this kid's in maine all right go to california it'll take him like what a couple of minutes like i just want to travel the world you mean you use him as your horse basically basically but then he also gets to experience what it's like in norway when we get there you know so like we get to travel together Wherever you choose, he gets to enjoy. <laughs> well, maybe I'll take a page from Matt's book and, and say he gets to pick some places. As long as you get to go. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we'd be travel buddies. We'd see the world. There, There is one scene earlier that really is just there for fun where, you know, Hogarth is kind of asked that question. What would you do now that you have a giant? And I know later he does like the whole like spinning around in the car thing. But first they want to go swimming. And yeah. they do the cannonball, and then the giant decides to mimic him and does a cannonball into this into this lake. And if you knew nothing else about this movie, this is the scene that lets you know it's Warner Brothers. Because when Giant does his cannonball, it creates like a tidal wave. And Dean is full on Wiley e. Coyote in this moment. He sees that wave <laughs> coming at him, and all he can do is raise his newspaper back up in his like mother kind of way and just lets it happen. Absolutely. It's straight out of an old Chuck Jones cartoon. Yes. You're absolutely right. Good catch. I mean, that's a funny gag. And then when you see the Iron Giant just like sitting in this empty crater where the lake used to be, 
And then you see Hogarth like hanging from this giant tree and he should be petrified, but he's like, Wee, that was awesome. I mean that that's like a, a cool kid kind of moment. Well, he would do one of two things, either be terrified or he would say that's the greatest thing ever. Right. I don't think he would think uh, existentially, wow, I almost touched death right there. <laughs> and I should now think about things differently in my approaching double digit age. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not how kids think. Although, actually, some kids do think like that. It, it depends on the kid. Uh, but we've kind of skipped over some of the plot with the government guy, uh, Mansley. And he goes to live with Hogarth because he's so convinced that Hogarth knows who the Iron Giant is. And there's a lot of Hogarth ducking Mansley. And at one point, Hogarth uses a trick to get away from him where he crumbles up some laxative and puts it in like his ice cream shake. And I hate this as a trope. Like that is just done in tons of movies and TV shows where someone wants to get revenge on someone or get rid of someone and they feed them some laxative and then that person has to run to the bathroom and tee hee hee, it's funny because poop. I find it to be lazy writing and it kind of bothered me in this movie because we see that Hogarth is very clever. He's very smart. He's like communicating with this giant creature who's maybe a Russian piece of weaponry, maybe an alien, but like he's teaching it English. Like this is a smart kid. I don't know. I just felt like they should have been able to do something better than he makes the government guy poop. I think it's really funny. <laughs> For me, it lands because it's all about the timing. Like, it's it's right when Mansley is, like, going on his big rant where he's like, you know, who sent it? Was it the Russian, the Chinese? Was it Canada? I don't know. I don't care. I just know it wasn't ours. So you're going to tell me where it came from. And then you hear the gurgle. Hold that thought. And then he has to run. Like, to me, it's it's a good punchline. You know, I'm going to paraphrase uh, Chris Rock. Howard Stern asked him, like, what is like a hack comic? And he was explaining, he's like, a hack comic is someone who only does toilet humor. But everyone has a good fart joke. He's like, I could tell a funny fart joke, but I'm a hack if that's my whole shtick is just a toilet joke. So I will say that this film, it had one. It doesn't do more than it. It doesn't have him farting throughout the film after this. So I agree with you all that it is a trope and... Um, Laxatives don't work that quickly. It was like, you know, two minutes later. Yeah, you know, might not be a good lesson to kids, but it's 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 effective plot wise. Uh, there's a scene where Hogarth and the robot are uh, the Iron Giant are in the forest and they hear a gunshot. Well, they had seen this deer, but then a minute later it's shot by hunters, and Hogarth teaches um uh, the Iron Giant, what dead means. And I actually misremembered this. I kind of thought that he brings the deer back to life. Yeah, that's not how death works, James. That sounds familiar, and I feel like that happens in another movie now. I can't remember what. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of feel like that happened in some film, that, that a deer is brought back to life. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe we're both just imagining what we wish Bambi was, and we were both scarred, so we created. <laughs> no, 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 there's this other one where Bambi's mother lives. Right. But I mean, this is where we see that the Iron Giant doesn't understand death, but once he does, he doesn't like it and he hates death and he does not like guns and he doesn't want 
anything to do with weapons or death or anything like that. Yeah, because we find out when Hogarth is using one of his 1950s, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote laser guns and the Iron Giant, he suddenly activates and he turns on a laser and he fires it straight at Hogarth. First time missing him narrowly and the second time he's about to just kill him. But Dean tackles him out of the way. And he's so scared, rightfully, from what the what he just saw the Iron Giant do that he just yells at the giant to get out of there. And the giant kind of runs away and he runs towards the town. Right. Uh, but the movie comes to a head when Mansley gets the army to show up. He's convinced that this Iron Giant is dangerous and in town. He gets Hogarth to admit where the Iron Giant is because basically he threatens to separate Hogarth from his mother and Hogarth caves to the pressure. But when they get to the scrapyard, Hogarth is able to warn Dean and the giant just basically looks like a piece of art. But then the Iron Giant sees Hogarth's toy gun. He runs away to town. And then Mansley and the army guys see the Iron Giant, that it is not a piece of art, and they attack. And once he is threatened, the Iron Giant becomes this giant weapon. And he had said earlier, I am not a gun. But he basically becomes a gun, like a big, huge, scary weapon at that point. Yeah, I mean, he's basically Iron Man with all the weapons deployed. Uh, you know, he flies, he has lasers, he has missiles. He becomes a terrifying you know, mech warrior robot uh, death machine. Some of the, the weapons that he has are, are really creative. And the one to this day that I think is so cool is when it's like it's this rotating thing on his wrist and a little needle pops up and just it fires off the sparks. Like there's no real accuracy to it. It's just friction and like that's what it's sending towards the troops right i mean it does sort of lend credence to the thing that this creature is in fact a man-made weapon because it seems like these things that he can do would be something that a human would create you know it's not just like all alien tech right i guess those are the two options either it's built by man or it's alien well, I mean, there are scenes in the extended DVD that supposedly answer it. You know, I actually, I don't even think it matters because if it's not in the real film, it's something that's completely not hinted at at all, really, except for the fact that he falls from space. But it really doesn't matter. I think it's better that this origin scene of the Iron Giant is, uh, is cut out from the film. It does exist. Have you ever seen it, Matt? Yeah, actually, just watched it for the first time because it's uh it's included with the Blu-ray, and it's it's a scene where it's like his second night sleeping in the scrapyard, and he starts having a nightmare, and his nightmare is like you know where he came from, and you see there's dozens of other Iron Giants, and they're sent to invade other planets, and they destroy other planets, and his nightmare starts broadcasting into Dean's television, and Dean wakes up right at the tail end just to sort of see like the giant in his like full weaponized form, and and then the giant wakes up from his nightmare and the broadcast stops. That's interesting, but I agree with you, James. The movie's better off without that. To me, it doesn't make sense that he's an alien, and I know I'm overanalyzing, and I know I'm overthinking, but why would an alien be made out of metal? It's a stupid thing, but like then I'm caught up thinking about that. You know, and I shouldn't be. My interpretation before I ever saw that scene was that he's a weapon that aliens made, but he's also an AI who got damaged and he's kind of like 
back at factory settings when he gets to Earth, and that's why he's so impressionable. Okay, I like that way better. Yeah, I agree with something along those lines. I've always thought that he's not working quite as he was meant to work, and he has some kind of uh, control, because obviously he's built with these weapons, and he doesn't want to use them, and he says, I am not a gun. But... Ken Mansley, he is convinced that he must be destroyed. They're also seeing that none of their weapons are really doing anything, but he says we could drop the bomb, meaning an atomic bomb, and their plan is to lure the uh, the giant out away from the people, and then they'll drop a bomb, you know, maybe in the middle of the forest of Maine, which is insane, by the way. But um, that's their plan. And they quickly abandon it because the reason the army started firing at the Iron Giant is because Mansley lied to them and said the giant had killed Hogarth. And then when they see Hogarth safe and sound, and not only safe and sound, but that the giant was keeping him safe, they immediately realize that Mansley is crazy and they say, you know, pack it in. And uh, while he's talking to the submarine, he's about to tell him, stand down. And then Mansley grabs the microphone from him and just yells, Fire the atomic bomb. And then the Iron Giant says goodbye to Hogarth. He says, you stay, I go, no following, which is a callback to what Hogarth had said to him earlier in the movie when he was trying to get him to stay behind and Hogarth was going to go home. It also definitely gave off E.T. vibes, you know, like the goodbye scene with E.T. and Elliot, which punches me in the feels every time I see that scene in E.T., And I felt like this was effective, you know, which is weird because it's Vin Diesel, but like it's it's emotional. Like you get it. This is their tearful goodbye. And the Iron Giant blasts off into space and he sacrifices himself. He basically kills himself to blow up this atomic weapon in space far away from everybody. And as he does it, he says the word Superman because he's remembering what Hogarth told him. You can be what you want to be and he wants to be the hero. And that's how he goes out in this heroic fashion, saving everybody. Did you like that scene, Al? I mean, I saw it coming, but I still thought it was well done and effective. Did it make you cry, James? It's one of the most beautiful scenes in motion picture history. It's perfect. I love that scene. And I will say that animation of the atomic explosion, that's 1998 animation. It is amazing. It is fantastic. And you hear Hogarth's voiceover, which makes sense. It's beautiful. It works. Right, Al? Voiceover works? No, that's not a voiceover. That's remembering a line that was said to him previously. Also, you didn't answer my question if you cried or not. No, no, I didn't. I did. I cry every time. You can put this scene on without context and I will be in tears. You know, it's one of those, you're choking. But uh, no, no, didn't actually, uh, didn't actually cry. But it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And then, uh, you know, the explosion happens. And Mansley, uh, I love that he was such a coward. He tried to drive away, but uh, the Iron Giant had stopped him. He gets arrested. So everything wraps up. The army says, everyone go home. And everyone's cheering because, you know, they're not dead. And then it suddenly goes to uh, one year later. Hogarth's mom is dating Dean, and there's a beautiful statue commemorating the Iron Giant in the town park. 
uh, Hogarth is sent one piece that was recovered from the Iron Giant, this one little screw, and I kind of called it. I, I shouldn't have done it because I was watching the movie with my kids, and now I'm the annoying dad. I'm like, oh, yeah, but he's fine because, you know, he can reassemble himself. And my daughter's like, no, dad, he's dead. Oh, my God, Al. I know. You blew the ending? So you're the guy who speaks Dutch and watches episode four with someone for the first time and goes, well, you know, Vader means father in my home language, right? <laughs> right, Al? Right, Al? Um, no, I don't speak Dutch. That's inaccurate. <laughs> no, I'm, it was kind of funny when my daughter's like, no, no, he died. And then, of course, you see that the screw is being summoned to this glacier in Iceland with the rest of the Iron Giant because he is reassembling himself. And you could be cynical and say, oh, they're just setting it up for the sequel. I don't think that's really true. You know, it is a kid's movie. And having that little moment at the end does sort of just make the kids less traumatized, I guess, at the end, that this beloved character died but only kind of died and is going to be fine to me the major theme of the movie is doing the right thing and really there's no real villain in this movie like kent mansley is the antagonist but he's not the villain like he thinks he's doing the right thing they all do the army does dean does like everybody at different times is wrong even hogarth at some points he's he's just kind of wrong of wanting to like hide this this robot but it's giant who finally does the true right thing and and decides to be a hero and that ending is that right thing being rewarded like he doesn't have to die for it he can come back and continue to be a hero and do the right thing and that's what that ending means to me i agree i think that is a very good way of putting it who's to say that this is like a month later. This could be 10,000 years later. That screw has a long way to go to roll from Maine to Iceland through a glacier. It's going to take a long time to get there. But even so, that, that screw we see is the one that's for his jaw. Once he gets a couple of legs on, he can walk to that screw and meet it somewhere else. True. He will have some TMJ, though. <laughs> <laughs> But now that we've come to the end of the movie, Matt, we will ask you first as our very special guest, do you think the Iron Giant stands the test of time? 100% this movie stands the test of time. The parts that don't are, to me, are just like sort of minutia, like, you know, one, because it's technically a period piece. So, you know, wall phones with a cord don't stand the test of time. To me, the thing that biggest that doesn't stand the test of time is there's a scene where Hogarth is trying to sneak out of his house and he's wants to distract his mom so he pulls a penny out of his pocket and throws it when was the last time a child had change in their pocket mm, very true when was the last time someone had change in their pocket <laughs> um but other than little things like that little parts broad strokes and the overall theme of the movie absolutely stands the test of time vin diesel doing voice work stands the test of time brad bird making superhero movies stands the test of time the idea of a person being afraid and fueled by their xenophobia is more relevant than ever right now. And the message that you can choose to be who you want to be and you can do the right thing. And even like we said, you know, kids learning how to protect themselves in school from this terrifying threat is a very relevant thing right now. Like there's just so much that translates today. You would just update it a little bit, but the themes of it 
are right now happening around us. Yeah, you make a good point. Some of it stands the test of time for bad reasons you know like it, it would be great if like you could say oh but xenophobia is not a thing anymore therefore this movie doesn't stand the test of time but that's not exactly the world we live in in 2021 is it yeah uh james what do you think do you think that the iron giant stands the test of time yeah i absolutely do i mean this film is beautiful i will say one thing is that the animation it's definitely not modern animation this is really kind of your 90s animation it's got that cell graphics look but but it's not as crispy as as is today uh i watched the original dvd uh, i don't know if the is the blu-ray remastered i think it's just more of an upscale the film itself looks fantastic, but you can't compare it to Pixar and DreamWorks' best animation. But that's not what it's trying to do. It's just a beautiful little story. The score by Michael Kamen is fantastic. I mean, there are a few scenes that I will just turn on YouTube. This is one of those scenes that for years I've been watching. I just search Iron Giant Superman. It's just a fantastic film. It's a movie that can elicit emotions and it can you know, activate emotions in you that you can't just turn on. And if there's one thing about this film not being a, a success is that you know some hack director didn't do the follow-up, which was terrible and kind of ruin it or do like you know 12 straight to video because that's what everyone did in the late 90s early 2000s that would have been a a terrible iron giant saturday morning cartoon maybe this is a one-off and it was a big deal in steven spielberg's ready player one true it was a hero in that film so you know spielberg certainly respects it and i think the film today you know it's really on you could arguably say the mount rushmore of of films i'm not sure i'd make that argument but just to say that today it is respected a hell of a lot more than that 20 whatever million dollars that it made at the box office so yes totally stands the test of time and now al i want to ask you do you think it stands the test of time al yeah a hundred percent i totally agree with everything you guys are saying it's a really well-made beautiful effective, affecting movie with a great story and a great message and it's sweet and it's a little sappy maybe, but also not really. Like, I feel like it never gets to any point of like being condescending, you know, like it's a kid's movie that talks about death in a fairly brutal kind of a way you know when you see the death of that deer it is deeply troubling to the iron giant and that continues to affect him as the movie goes on unlike bambi where you see bambi's mother get shot and then in the next scene it's like look at me i'm thumper you know like it it, it just kind of glazed over very quickly this movie i think does a really good job of dealing with really serious stuff and doing it in a really smart way that works for kids it works for adults my kids liked it my son won't admit that he liked it because he's 11 almost 12 and he's too cool to admit that he liked uh, a cartoon but i enjoyed it courtney enjoyed it i'm disappointed that i'd never seen the movie before but it's very easy to recommend i certainly think anyone who hasn't seen it should watch it i'm 
glad that you encouraged me to watch it, Matt. I'm glad that you came here to, to talk about the movie because clearly you love it. And uh, I knew you were going to say that it stands the test of time. But uh, I think it's an amazing movie. And you're also right about Brad Bird. I mean, like that guy's gone on to do so much great stuff. And um, Vin Diesel, I think, works great as a voiceover actor. As an actor, eh, I could take him or leave him. But like when he's doing Groot and when he's doing the Iron Giant, love him. He's great at this stuff. I would admit he's good in eight out of nine Fast and Furious films. Oh, Jesus. I have zero desire to watch him in anything like that or The Pacifier, to be honest. But uh, if he's doing VO work, sure, I'm in. You were talking about how they talk about death. And I thought there was one line I didn't pick up till this viewing. It's kind of brutal because there's this line when the Iron Giant asks, are you going to die? And Hogarth is this nine-year-old kid that says, yep, I'm going to die. And that's not talked about to nine-year-olds. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. You know, it does make poop jokes, you're right. But it also, you know, death is something that you could talk to kids about. Uh, it's, it's a very grown-up uh, thing, but it talks to children in a way that they can understand. But that's a really, it hits, hits you really right there. That Hogarth's like, yeah, I'll be dead someday. Well, they don't explicitly say what happened to Hogarth's dad, but it's implied that he died right like isn't there a picture of him as like in a soldier's uniform or something yeah i don't even think they ever mention him but it's just one of those things where you imagine that like yeah he's missed right so i mean if the kid's dad died then he's going to know what death is and right yeah he, he might be kind of matter of fact about it and i think one of the reasons they decided to put that that in is during production of this movie is when brad bird's sister was tragically murdered uh, from gun violence. And so that's when he kind of wanted to put in this anti-gun message and probably when he decided to deal with the the subject of death. Like, you know, this is this is a thing to talk about. Right, yeah, and, and that was sort of like his pitch, right? Like, what if there was a gun that didn't want to be a gun? Right. Apparently, the, the book that this movie is based on is nothing like the movie. Like, it's really weird and kind of out there and crazy. Yeah, it's written by uh, Ted Hughes, and yeah, it's called The Iron Man. Like, the broad strokes are the same. There's still, like, this Iron Man that befriends a boy named Hogarth. But instead of, you know, saving the town from a nuclear warhead, it has to go battle this golden dragon in space. Yeah, it sounds pretty weird, but apparently, like, the author died before the movie came out, but he really was impressed with what he saw of Brad Bird's, I don't know, script or like some rough cut or whatever. And uh, he appreciated all that Brad Bird did with the story, which really did take it in a very, very different direction, which was affected by what happened to his sister. So, yeah, I mean, he, he definitely took the material and, and made it his own. But Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Apologies again that it took so damn long. Remind everyone one more time about your podcast and where they can find it. So you can find at Season 14 Podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram. It's an obsessive fan, a fan fiction author, and a first-time viewer going through every episode of Supernatural. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Movies at the Mat, where I'm talking movies, TV, and any kind of other random stuff, video games, baseball chiming in on whatever the discourse of the day is <laughs> the important things in life yes 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, Matt. It was great having you. We'll have to have you on again. Uh, the other movie that you mentioned was, um, crap. Now I'm drawing a blank. What was the other movie you talked about? The Hitchhiker's Guide. Right, 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 right. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the 2004 version, right? Yeah. I came up with that because you, in one of your other episodes, you guys were saying how you both had recently turned 41, and I was like, you're going to be 42 in a year. You got to do that movie. It's true. That is a movie I have seen exactly once. I get the 42 joke. James and I are 42 now, so we'll, we'll have to do it. All right. Well, thank you again. That's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we are going to come back and talk about Dances with Wolves. The Kevin Costner Civil War epic drama. Until then, we want to hear from you. Talk to us. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at Test of Time Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.